Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination, and I am especially grateful for the care that you have taken in discharging your constitutional duty in service of our democracy with all that is going on in the world today. I also offer my sincere thanks to you as well, Madam Vice President, for your invaluable role in this nomination process. I must begin these very brief remarks by thanking God for delivering me to this point in my professional journey. I must mention specifically the three brilliant jurists for whom I had the privilege of serving as a law clerk at the outset of my legal career. U.S. District Judge Patty Saris in Massachusetts, U.S. Court of Appeals Bruce, Judge Bruce Selya in Rhode Island, and last but certainly not least, Associate Justice Stephen Breyer of the Supreme Court of the United States. And happy Saturday and welcome to The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is Saturday, February 26, 2022. Uh, it is a momentous day. There's a lot going on in the last 24, 48 hours. Um, some very big news stories, and uh, the biggest of the news story you saw coming in is a black woman has been selected uh, to be the nominee to replace Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. And, of course, things going on in Ukraine, mass mandates being lifted everywhere. So I'm not going to waste any time. I'm going to find uh, our uh, resident genius, uh, Val Atkinson. I'm going to bring him in to talk about uh, all the news that's going on. Hey, Val, welcome back to the deal. Thank you, Ed. Glad to be here, man. This is a good time to talk about all that's going on in the world. Dude, I mean, my head's been spinning, like I said, the last, you know, 24, 48 hours. It's just so much. And, and you know, trying to put this show together, I try to be as timely as possible, you know, we always have clips that are within hours sometimes or, or minutes of things going on. By the time we're recording, we're talking about things all the way up until the time we come on. Uh, the one thing that we got to talk about is uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, uh, she has been nominated to replace Stephen Breyer on the uh, Supreme Court. What is your take on uh, on uh, Miss Jackson and, and also... Uh, Joe Biden and the way he approaches. Well, I, I applaud Joe Biden for sticking to his word uh, and doing something that should have been done long, long ago in uh, nominating and appointing uh, the first African-American female to the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be lost to anyone that we really haven't had an African-American on the court since Thurgood Marshall. And the reason I say that, we're not talking just about the phenotypical appearance, what you look like and that sort of thing, but we're talking about people upholding the principles and the issues surrounding Black America to lift us up from the doldrums and put us where we need to be. Clarence Thomas hadn't done that. Uh, and so to have uh, Miss Jackson on the court. Uh, I started to call her J Justice Jackson. She ain't that yet, but she will be soon, hopefully. To have her on the court is going to be a blessing. It'll be the first one taking up African-American issues since Thurgood Marshall. So I can't wait until that 
time happens and I wish uh, her well. I, I want to take a sidestep here in, in noting that it was of special interest to me, Ed, because I, in reading uh, Miss Jackson's bio and her history, uh, I, I found that she had some similarities with my daughter-in-law, who is also a corporate lawyer at this time, trying to raise my two-year-old grandson. Uh, and uh, that is a challenge. And Ms. Jackson went through the same challenges uh, in doing her career, pointing out uh, the limitations, the challenges uh, of being a corporate lawyer, the billable hours necessary, and then coming home and trying to be a good mother, a good wife, a good family member. It's more than a notion. And I, I applaud her for what she did and how she handled it. And I'm gonna definitely use some of this to share with my daughter-in-law and tell her that we understand now how tough things are and we are, we, we got her back. And, and so I guess you're planning on her being a Supreme Court justice at some point. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it if it comes up. <laughs> yeah, you, you, know, you know, you're talking about uh, uh, Judge uh, Jackson's uh, background. One of the other things I found interesting about her is you do mention she started out in corporate law, but she went and said that, hey, if I'm going to really you know, be a lawyer and advance my career, I need to do some other things. And one of the other things she did is she clerked at the Supreme Court. She clerked at the Court of Appeals. Uh, she clerked uh, or, or worked at the US, United States Sentencing Commission. She became a public defender in the federal system. A lot of people don't do that. She has a Harvard law degree, uh, which is one of the criticisms, uh, you know, that kept coming up about maybe choosing somebody who had, didn't have a Harvard Yale background because that's all that seems to ever get on the court. But but she said, okay, if if I'm gonna really do this, I'm gonna go and do some other things, and those other things are substantial to me. Uh, so it leads me to my next question to you is. Clearly, she has the experience and is qualified uh, because we talked about this in the past. There are no written qualifications for what a Supreme Court justice should be or whatever. Can you talk some historical context to me about people who have ended up on the court that don't have anything near her qualifications? And some of it is very recent history in the form of Amy Coney Barrett. And even Clarence Thomas, who did not have the kind of credentials that Judge Jackson had. Yeah, when you look at Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett, those three come up. Uh, and, and those were the three that were appointed by uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and it, it begs the question, is the whole business of court appointments about uh, qualifications or is it about ideology? And is it about trying to stack the court? Uh, and when I ask myself those questions, Ed, uh, I feel uncomfortable because it appears that lately we are coming down on the side of ideology instead of qualifications. Uh, qualifications seem not to matter, although it doesn't say in the Constitution anywhere uh, that you should have, a, what school you should have attended, what level of education, the, the specific experiences that you 
you should have attained. It doesn't mention any of those kinds of things. Uh, we just allowed people to put people on the court because they wanted them to. And we love the uh, person who was making that appointment. The Senate didn't be become active in this whole process until Mitch McConnell started doing what he did with Barack Obama and threatening to do even more uh, and, and then having an exceptions to the rule of cloture and, and, and filibuster so that you could get court nominations in. Then it took on a whole air of ideology and it became political to the extent that qualifications got pushed way to the background. I'm hoping now with the appointment of Justice uh, Jackson that we can get back to putting people on the court that are qualified, that are experienced, that are learned, and have the potential to do good jurisprudence to and for the United States of America. Exactly. I mean, that's what the court's for. I want to remind you, you're watching the deal or you're listening to it. If you listen to a podcast, uh, we're talking about uh, uh, Katanji uh, Brown Jackson, who is going to be the next Supreme Court justice on the United States Supreme Court, if everything goes well. Uh, 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 Val, let's wrap this up because we need to talk about Ukraine. But what the last aspect of this is that she has had three uh, other appearances before Senate committees before. She's testified before. She's gotten votes from Republicans before. Obviously, she did because she's sitting on the Court of Appeals now for D.C. And that, mean, that meant that she had to get approved by Republicans. Um, but we do know the shenanigans that have been going on. What my fear is, is Democrats. Uh, we haven't talked about our friend Joe Manchin or Chris Kirsten Cinema in a while. Is it any possibility that they could uh, be problematic with this nomination with a Judge uh, Brown? I personally don't think so. <clears throat> and the reason I don't think so, Ed, is because it would uh, let out let the cat out of the bag of what they have been motivated by all along. Uh, they've been changing their reasons every time an issue comes up that they refuse to side with the Democrats. Sometimes they have a different reason why they are not siding with the Democrats. And if they would go against uh, Ms. Jackson, uh, it would throw all of that out of the window and say, we know why you don't side with Democrats now. You don't believe in our philosophy. You are more akin to the far right than you are with your Democratic comrades. And so they can't afford to be they would not want to be placed in that position. So I think they would go ahead and go along, especially when they see that two, maybe even as many as three Republicans will come out supporting uh, this nomination. I don't think they will run the risk because it will have no effect. If you had three Republicans supporting this nomination, uh -huh. their denial has no effect at all other than right. exposing who they really are. Right. Yeah, I think it I think it especially Kirsten Cinema, I think it poses the biggest risk for her uh cuz people are already lined up to raise money to get rid of her <laughs> and they're not going to support her the next time she runs. Well, uh, good enough. Uh 
a Godspeed to Judge Jackson. I, I, I hope this goes through quickly. I hope it goes through like the Amy Coney Barrett thing. What was it, like 60 days from the time Trump nominated her and then gave everybody COVID before she was on the court? <laughs> before she was on the court. Okay, uh, this is a big switch in gears. Uh, your boy, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, went ahead and invaded Ukraine. He's in Ukraine now. I was watching reports up until the time we came online. I'm going to play some, uh, a clip from Germany, from Deutsche Welle. Uh, let's take a look at that, and then we'll talk about it. Guns are being handed out to ordinary citizens, and people are being urged to make petrol bombs and resist. Russian troops attacked an army base located on a main Kiev avenue, but the assault was repelled, the Ukrainian military said. President Volodymyr Zelensky has denied Russian claims that he had fled the capital, saying in a social media video, quote, we will not lay down our weapons, we will defend our state. He has also refused an American offer to leave Kiev. So, Val, uh, that was from Deutsche Welle, the German news service, uh, and just minutes before we came on the air, and they were talking about troops on the ground in Ukraine near Kiev. Uh, they're at other points where I don't think people anticipate it. But one of the things that has struck me is that uh, President Zelensky is still in Kiev. And you saw that part of him saying, I ain't going no damn where. Uh, F y'all. Uh, come on, bring it on. And, uh, and as of uh, 9.30 a.m. when we were recording this, the Russians had not taken one city completely, but they were in a lot of places. Talk to me, one, about how it's going for Putin and what does he stand to gain? I still don't get invading Ukraine because even if you install a puppet there, uh, you saw what they did the last time the Ukrainians got rid of that puppet and put Zelensky in office, Zelensky in office in the first place. So tell me where we are this morning and what is Putin trying to gain here? Well, let's take Zelensky. First of all, he's been offered... Uh, passage and protection by the United States to get out of Kiev and uh, locate to some other place that's going to be safer. He's denied that because he wants to show to his fellow countrymen that he's strong and in his particular position, he doesn't want to be the one that appears to be run out of town. He can't then tell his other people to stay and fight. Uh, so I don't think that uh, uh, he will take the offer laid in front of him by, by the United States to, to leave. What happens to him after that, uh, we don't know. We'll have to watch. I don't think it'll be good in any respect for him. I think he's right in his assessment of either being killed or being, at a minimum, incarcerated uh, for a long, long time. But going back to your first question, what does Russia see and what are they trying to get out of all of this. Uh, I was puzzled more uh, so when I first heard about this and read it as everyone else. But reading a few things last night and this morning about SWIFT answered a few questions for me that I hadn't been exposed to earlier. And that is, we have not as of the time of this recording uh, implemented SWIFT yet as in all of its full powers. Uh, because if we did that, it would effectively 
cut Russia off from the rest of the world. Uh, and uh, we don't want to do that for several reasons, one of which is it would force China's hand into becoming closer to Russia, supplying them where others won't. It'll also probably stop some of the supplies going from China to the West. And, and should I bring up the word Walmart? You haven't seen anything until you see China stop supplying Walmart, okay? And everybody knows what's going to happen there. Not to mention the gas issue, the, the petrol, the gas, the energy issues uh, that Russia supplies Europe with, particularly Germany, as, as, as you mentioned. So we know what the consequences are if we went that far with SWIFT. I think that Putin knew this too before he decided to invade uh, Ukraine. And he decided that where there's a limit, they can do little around the margin issues, but they can't swing the big stick because it's going to be a boomerang and it comes back and hits them too. So they can't afford to do that. So I'll go in and take what I want. Uh, but after it's all said and done, the prime reason that Putin is doing what he's doing, Ed, is to remove the possibility of the United States of America having troops on Russian borders. Now, you think about it just a little bit. If NATO has a country that borders, runs right up to the border of Russia, then the United States can officially and legally be on that border because they are a member of NATO. Russia doesn't want that. And they bring up the notion that we were almost ready to go to World War III to keep the Russians 90 miles away from us back in 1962. We didn't want them within 90 miles. If we didn't want them within 90 miles of us, turn that around and ask, why would they want us on right on their border? On right. the border. This is why he's doing this. He's trying to keep NATO, particularly the United States of America, off of his borders. So what he wants to do is build a buffer zone, or as they used to say in Star Trek, a nuclear zone, a neutral zone, uh-huh. where there is uh, no. Uh, side having advantage or whatever, that there will be almost a no-fly zone, uh, there will be a no-combat zone, there'll be a no-troop zone. That gives him a sense of security more so than having NATO troops right on his border. Because if you go back prior to 1989, the border that Russia shares with Eastern Europe even those nations that are not a member of uh, NATO, but they are former uh, USSR members, uh, all of those uh, people uh, would have provided some kind of neutral, no-fly, uh, no-weapons zone. Uh-huh. And it doesn't provide that now. And that's what Putin wants. I know I've been kind of convoluted on this, but no, that that's the, that's what he wants. He's looking for security 
to keep NATO and particularly the United States of America off of his borders. Yeah. So, so the last piece on this, because I know we button up on the break. Um, uh, the Soviet Union dissolved. There, you know, obviously, you know, uh, they lost a lot of prestige. In in a, in a lot of the remarks from Putin this week, he was critical of the Soviet Union. Uh, Putin is not a communist; he's a dictator, which are completely different things. Not only he's a dictator, he's a white nationalist. On top of that, Val, and and when we come back from the break, I do want to expand on this a little bit more. The white nationalism that's part of Russia orthodoxy. Uh, so I guess the last question before we take a break is what happens if he can't get other support other than China? Uh, you know, the the old stands that used to be part of Russia, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and all those places, uh, there's a lot of Muslims in those places and they're not interested in coming back into the a Soviet style, you know, orbit or whatever. Poland certainly isn't. Latvia isn't. Estonia isn't. Uh, so even if he takes Ukraine back into the fold, he's going to have problems there because those people are going to fight to be a, U a independent Ukraine again. Belarus seems to be the only country that he has on his side. Um, is this really a lose-lose proposition for him? Because he's going to be fighting in Ukraine for a long time, even if they install a puppet government there. Well, you know, it depends upon whose reality are we looking at this through. Because if you're looking at it from the reality of the West, you would say that he has to suffer from this pain we're inflicting upon him through our sanctions. And at some point he'll have to say, well, this hurts too badly. Let me see if I can acquiesce to some of their demands and maybe they'll lift some of these sanctions off of me. That's the West logic. That's their lens they're looking through. I don't want Putin to be looking at this through Tojo's logic. Tojo was the guy who called the shots for Japan in World War II. And when the United States of America decided to cut the oil supply off of the, from Japan, thinking that they would acquiesce and stop meddling in World War II, being a part of the Axis along with uh, Germany and stop attacking Great Britain because we would be too painful on them. And they would say, okay, give, give us our oil back and we'll stop fighting. The Japanese took the third option. They said, well, we'll just uh, kill your ability to do all of these things to us, and we'll bomb Pearl Harbor. We never thought they'd do that. We never thought they'd do that. And I'm saying I am afraid that the West could be making the same mistake again. You think that the only two options that Putin has is to give in to your sanctions or keep doing what he's doing and starve to death. Those are the mm. two options that he has. Okay? There's a third option. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He's already said that if we go to World War Three and the whole world is in flames and annihilated, 
He thinks that Russians will be in a better place to rebuild community and civilization than that of the West, who's used to uh, power and dominance and luxury and and all of those good things. So, well, well, that's scary. I don't want him to go to. <laughs> Well, that's scary. I hear the music in the background. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about Russia a little bit more. One last piece about the white supremacy piece of this Russia thing. And uh, we'll be right back after this message. well documented that these white supremacists are homegrown Americans, but some argue that their cause is also being supported from abroad. A theory perpetuated at another alt-right rally in May. Russia is our and the feeling could be mutual. A report published last month by a US intelligence agency noted as with all of its 2016 election active measures, Russia is not planting seeds of discord and strife, but rather providing fertilizer and sunlight to an already existing bitter crop. Admiration of the Kremlin is something leading supremacists have no intention of hiding. Extreme nationalist Richard Spencer believes Russia is the sole white power in the world while former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke says Moscow holds the key to white survival. And they are backed up by the head of the white nationalist traditionalist worker party, Matthew Heimbach, who recently described Russian President Vladimir Putin as the leader of the free world and a person who has helped morph Russia into an axis for nationalists. Welcome back to our second segment of The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Park. That is Val Atkinson. And we're trying to uh, fix all the problems in the world in an hour, uh, which we do every Saturday. Uh, so remind folks to uh, take a look at The Deal. And you can watch it anytime. You can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on Facebook. Uh, and we'd love to have you do that. Um, and uh, please share the link with your friends. You can go to the deal with edclark.com. And then you can... Uh, subscribe on YouTube and all that stuff. And we need to do a better job. I'm, I'm an old man, so it's hard for me to get used to the, all this uh, subscribing, all this stuff, Val. But uh, I guess we'll figure it out at some point. Uh, you know, you know, we were talking about Russia before um, the break, and, and we were talking about in terms of them invading Ukraine. Uh, but one thing, Val, that I, I, I wanted to add to the mix is uh, you remember this guy named Donald Trump. So I said Donald Trump, so that means I got to play something about him later on. 
but there's this guy named Donald Trump who was running for president and there were some accusations that he had relationships with Russia uh, and he got impeached for it. Uh, now, part of his impeachment trial, uh, when people started talking about it, was that uh, he was trying to pressure the president of Ukraine to say bad things about Joe Biden and his son Hunter. And he, this Trump guy, would also say favorable things to Vladimir Putin. In the lead into this segment, Val, uh, there was a clip from a Turkish documentary from five years ago. And the documentary was about how Russia was supporting white supremacists in the United States who supported Donald Trump. And what I tried to tell people back then, and I've been trying to get, say this all along, is the Russian thing wasn't about them interfering in the election in terms of flipping votes and voting machines and all that other stuff. But it was ginning up white people on that white supremacist tip that their civilization was at risk. And the only pure white civilization still left were the Russians and that you needed to emulate the Russians and support Vladimir Putin. So that's a long way to get to Val. Uh, this whole notion of white supremacy still driving a lot of American politics and people uncomfortable with that. Talk to me, put on your professor hat here. And, and you, you're looking at the history of America. We went through, you know, the Civil War. We got to Reconstruction and Jim Crow and all this other stuff. And, and the numbers do not look good for white people. So people like Richard Spencer and some of the people in that clip emerge and they say we got to maintain a white nation and we got to make America great again, which means you got to harken back to the 1940s and Jim Crow or whatever. Uh, talk to me about from a historical lens here, this Russian interference in supporting white supremacist groups and how that props up this whole notion that America is a white country and needs to be saved for the white folk. Well, this is the second time, Ed, that we've had a foreign uh, a nation uh, entity to come in and take a look at what we're doing socially uh, and nationally uh, to adopt that, to Im implement it in their own country or to be used as a model that some of the things that can be done here in the United States. The first time was when Adolf Hitler wanted new measures and ideas about how to treat the Jewish population in this country. And he focused in on how America, white America, was treating the black man here. That's where he got his ideas about what to do about what he called the Jewish problem. Uh, I see uh, some of the people uh, in Russia uh, trying to do the same thing on the other side of that coin with the United States of America in terms of honing in on America's race problem and seeing what they could do to further divide Americans and siding with the white nationalists and those kinds of people propping themselves up to be, purporting to be the only white supremacist country in the world capable of supporting 
white people all around the world. Uh, and this ties in with what we've always said about the demographic report of whites being uh, in the minority in this country, the United States of America. That has been problematic and still is because now the laws have to change in order to protect their dominance because the laws as they are written now says that this is a democracy and the majority rule. Can't have that. That means white folks don't rule. So they got to figure out a way how to maintain rule and dominance and be in the minority at the same time. That's problematic because people in the United States are not becoming less intelligent, they're becoming more intelligent. And they can see right through all of these things. So what has happened now led by the Tea Party and now led by the Trumpers, they drop all of the pretenses and they're coming right out with it now. And they don't mind if people say or that people know that they are on the side of the white supremacists. And it's going to get even worse, I predict. Yeah, you know, Val, you know, we had talked about the Canadian truckers over the last month as well. Uh, they weren't really Canadian truckers. There were a few amongst those. But uh, when the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police started making arrests, what they found out was that a number of them were white supremacist leaders from uh, Western United States and Western Canada, a separatist group uh, that they have had problems with that also had ties back to Russia and, and Russian supremacists or whatever. So, I mean, I, I, I think uh, we, we have to keep our eye on this. I, I think uh, the advantage we have now is that um, the demographics are starting to be in our favor, but also people are changing. So let's talk about people changing real quick. Um, George Floyd, uh, there is a, a, another trial uh, in his murder, the other three officers that were involved were convicted as well this week. Let's take a look at a clip and then we'll talk about it. Today is a, it's a good day for us that this is the first time that I ever seen something like this did. Four uh, white officers were convicted of killing an African-American man. Um, I know a lot of people have been texting me back and forth. Uh, I'm grateful for what all these attorneys did today, and you know, they my friends, you know, because they they did a hell of a job. And after just watching what happened to Kim Potter, I was like, I'm still gonna believe, and I have faith because I just wanted some time to be served from somebody for what happened to my brother. Um, this is just accountability. It can never be justice because I can never get George back. And hey, Val, no that, that's George Floyd's brother and, and nephew uh, talking about their delight at, you know, uh, further convictions in this case. Obviously, you know, uh, it was heinous what was done to George Floyd. Um, uh, it, it was graphic. It was seen all over the world. Uh, in so there's some progress made there on the one hand, but last week we talked about Kim Potter, where the judge, you know, basically hugged her <laughs> and, and, and said, uh, we all, you know, care about you and want you to be okay. There's still that dichotomy, isn't it, Val, that, that, that on one hand you seem to be making progress and then, then you, in another case, you're taking some steps back because, uh, 
black folks are still ending up dead. Uh, so we got a ways to go. We're we're in the middle of Black History Month, and, and one of the things that I, I've been doing is you know going back, looking at old film and all kind of stuff. And and, and uh, there's a, a long history of killing black folks, and nobody paying for it, right? Uh, have we have what does it say about progress that we've gotten these convictions in the George Floyd case? Are we any better off? I mean, does it does it show actually show progress or are these one offs and and we just take what we can get? I don't think there's a lot of progress personally. Uh, you're talking about a trial where got somebody committed a crime and he gets convicted. That should be the norm. Yeah, I mean, we're in a bad place when we are applauding the norm. What are your expectations that you don't get that? You know, it, it, it's, it's almost unfathomable that we have allowed things to get this bad. At the center of the causation here, Ed, is something called qualified immunity. And until we address that and deal with that so that the police officers, notwithstanding all of the training they get, will know, experience, and see that there is a price to pay. If you take the rights and liberties of the people that you are sworn to protect and defend, you could play a price that will impact your family uh, in perpetuity, okay? It could be something that will really change the way they approach law enforcement. Because right now there's no difference in the attitude of a on the beat metropolitan police officer and seat in the saddle of people chasing runaway slaves. There ain't a whole lot of difference. The attitude is to apprehend, is to attack, is to get into the mindset of the slaves, of the uh, ghetto residents or whatever, that you are the law and what you say cannot be countermanded or ignored and they must be afraid of you and they must police themselves or worse harm will come to them. And, and we've got to do something to change that attitude among police officers. Too many of them go out there with that attitude and convicting a guy here or there is good, but I think it, does, it fails against the whole notion of qualified immunity where these officers get sued and now it hurts them and their family. It takes away their homes. It takes away their possessions. If we can get to that, I think it will change the attitude. A lot of people on police forces today, Ed, won't even try to sign up. And we get a whole new crop of people now that's really about the business of protecting and defending. Yeah. Say you are protecting and defending. You know nobody in the whole community that you're supposed to be protecting that. You know no one. The yeah. only relationship you have with those people is you walk in there with your hands on your hip, expecting to be of uh, 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 having those people to fear you and be afraid of you mm -hmm. and, and afraid to not answer every call you make. And what you are waiting for them to tell you one lie, one thing that is not absolutely the truth, to give you authority 
to assault them, arrest them, and to ruin their lives. That's that's not policing. That's not policing at all, Val. You know, uh, here in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is where we are, you're watching the deal, by the way. This is Val Atkinson. I'm Ed Clark. Uh, here in Raleigh, North Carolina this week, uh, a police officer was arrested by the Drug Enforcement Agency, Val. Uh, he was uh, planting drugs on people, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But then it turns out he was also selling drugs on the street. He was trying to uh, uh, get people out of the way out of his drug operation. And, and it appears that, you know, this uh, he was a fairly new officer since 2018, I believe. But... Uh, 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 I have a clip. Uh, I want to play it, and then we can talk. A lot of information we can talk he went through for us. So first of all, he tells us that a warrant was issued this week for Officer Kevin Rodriguez. So what he says happened is that RPD and the DEA received info from confidential sources in late 2021 that he was distributing drugs right here in Raleigh. The U.S. Attorney says that on January 22nd. Rodriguez met with a confidential source while dressed in police gear and also driving his police cruiser, his work vehicle. And that's when Rodriguez exchanged that cocaine for $2,600, again, from that informant. Now, I want you to hear what Michael Easley, the U.S. attorney, was telling us about the charges he's going to face and just how much trouble that he's going to be in for this. Rodriguez has been charged with distribution of a quantity of cocaine and possession of a firearm in furtherance and in connection with that offense. He was arrested late yesterday and he had his initial appearance just moments ago before Magistrate Judge Gates here in the Eastern District of North Carolina. As alleged in the complaint affidavit, this investigation began when members of the Raleigh Police Department and the Drug, Administra Drug Enforcement Administration received information from two confidential sources that Kevin Rodriguez was distributing controlled substances in the jurisdiction of Raleigh, North Carolina, and that Kevin Rodriguez was a police officer. Now, the Raleigh police, uh, police chief, Estella Patterson, she was telling us uh, that Rodriguez is now on administrative duty without pay because they're doing their internal investigation as we speak. Now, Rodriguez was hired by the department in 2018. Of course, we're still so, going through all the information. So, Val, uh, the point here is that uh, you see the police chief in Raleigh is a black woman. There's a lot of black folks as police chiefs around the country. You still have police officers who are arresting colored folk and beating colored folks upside the head. And you still got black people running these uh, police departments. Before we run out of time in this segment, talk to me about that, that dichotomy that, that all of a sudden you got all these major cities. Cause I consider Raleigh a major city hiring black police chiefs and a lot of time black women, but the police departments are still out of control. Well, I think, uh, uh, the far right found out decades ago that there was a way that they could put blacks in high position, even president of the United States, and still control the way things are done down below at the operational levels. And so now uh, they don't mind having African-Americans, Hispanic Americans, uh, females to be police chiefs because they know at down at the operational level, they can still continue to do all of the things they want to do. And the police chief cannot interfere. Uh, so now it has not become a big thing. 
a, a couple of elections ago here in North Carolina, there were seven uh, uh, elections for county sheriff, all won by African-Americans. That's unfair. You, you, you've never heard of that kind of thing before. Uh, and But people have lost their fear. White people have lost their fear of putting an African-American or a female in the top seat because they know they can still operate as they always have done. On this case with Mr. Rodriguez, who was caught selling drugs in uniform on duty, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, it just goes to show you how far we've got to go to clean up, to clean up policing in America. And every time you use that word clean up, Ed, they hide behind rising crime rates. They hide behind uh, more killing, uh, uh, people doing wrong things. You know, if they would come off of that just a little bit, they're going to be surprised when the crime rate really, really goes down. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, that's exactly right. I hear some music in the background. One of the things, uh, uh, last thing is uh, uh, it's the 10th anniversary of the murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, uh, there's a special coming on this weekend uh, in the break. You'll see a promo for it. It's going to be on tonight, Saturday night the 26th of uh, February. Uh, so uh, take a look at that promo and then we're gonna take a break. We'll be right back after this. No Trayvon Martin's death is a catalyst moment in society. It marked the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. What happened with Trayvon made uh, a country come together. Conversations started to take place that weren't really taking place before. Have we made some progress, do you feel, in the 10 years? Trayvon Martin, 10 years later, streaming Saturday at 9 on CBS News Miami. Court decision Wednesday could lead to a shakeup as election season starts. Three judges in Wake County rejected the changes Republicans made last week to the state's 14 congressional districts, saying they still didn't meet the court standards. Using a team of outside experts, the court redrew the map in a way that would benefit Democrats. I think Democrats have to be extraordinarily happy with um, some safe seats and some co competitive seats uh, that could produce some wins. The website Dave's Redistricting app says based on recent voting history, the congressional map likely has seven Republican seats, six Democratic seats, and one toss-up. Democrats would gain a seat in Charlotte, and the competitive district would include part of Wake County. Unlike in previous versions Republicans approved, Democrat Kathy Manning, who represents the triad, would have an easier time holding on to her seat. Republican Madison Cawthorn likely would run in the westernmost district instead of trying to run closer to Charlotte like he planned. This is the kind of brass knuckle hardball politics that we're seeing play out in real time. The court upheld changes Republicans made to districts for the General Assembly. Democrats still had concerns, though, about the state Senate map, with Governor Roy Cooper calling it the worst of the bunch. People involved in the case had only a few hours Wednesday to decide whether to appeal. And welcome back to our last segment of the deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. That's Val Atkinson. We have been on a roller coaster ride. We've been all over the world today. We've been from, uh, uh, you know, Raleigh, North Carolina to Ukraine to, <laughs> uh, 
Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, you name it. Uh, uh, there's always a lot going on. Again, I, re I remind folks to make sure you catch us in all the other places you can. Val Atkinson is on uh, Foxy 107, 104 on Connections on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. You can also listen to that from anywhere in the world uh, via the Internet, whatever your favorite app, or you can go to Foxy NC. Uh, dot com. Uh, you can always catch me on the deal uh, with edclark.com uh, where you catch my writings and and uh, all that other stuff. I'm an old curmudgeon. Get off my lawn. I don't want to, you know, I don't like anybody. So, but all my pieces always have a historical context to them. Uh, you can you can find Val Atkinson where you can buy books. Uh, he's an author, uh, former professor at North Carolina Central University. Make sure you buy his books because he needs to be able to eat and we want to make sure he's here on Saturday morning. So, so find Val Atkinson. Uh, you'll see that, uh, right there in, uh, Val Atkinson and then, uh, on Amazon. So, uh, you can buy his books there and, and wherever fine books are sold, uh, you can look for Val Atkinson. So anyway, uh, Val, um, we got, a, we got a few other things we want to talk about coming in for the break. Uh, we saw, that the state of North Carolina uh, three judge panel decided that the maps were no good. And we also have been talking about that for the last uh, uh, couple of months here, what was going to happen. All, everything did not work out in the favor. And I won't even say the Democrats favor. I, I will say in the, in, in the favor of fairness, uh, the congressional maps look better. Uh, one of the things that you, that people are anticipating is maybe a seven, six split where we were looking at, uh, an 11, three split at one point. So they're talking seven, six with one toss up. If, if things work out, which could mean a seven, seven delegation, which would be extraordinary, which really is probably, uh, still not, for reality. If you think about it, it probably should be the other way around. It should be like an eight, you know, six Democrat majority based on the, what the, the real demographics in North Carolina. Uh, let's deal with these congressional districts real quick. What is your assessment of the way it looks uh, is seven, six with one toss up really what we're working with? Uh, what do you think so far? Well, that, that was so good the way you, uh, uh, phrase that and uh, uh, allowed us to come in from that angle, Ed, simply because it's a testament to how successful Republicans have been over the years. Republicans, registered Republicans, make up about a third of, of all registered voters here in North Carolina. And here we are claiming that 50-50 is a victory for us, that it would be wonderful if we could get a seven, six, these guys represent a third. You know, they, I, I take my hat off to them. They have been successful beyond their means at convincing the public that their fair advantage <laughs> is the right thing to do. As, they, as we used to say in the military all the time, that's all I'm trying to do is to get my fair advantage. You know, that's all Republicans have been trying to do a long time, and they seem to have gotten that right here. But if if the 
congressional maps stand as they are here in North Carolina. And we uh, end up having a 7-7 congressional delegation or even a 8-6. It would be a, a big increase over what we had before when it was 13 districts and it was uh, eight to five. Uh, so having said that, I would say I am so glad and thankful uh, that the courts took another look at this and decided to draw it themselves. The problem here still is that they let stand the legislative maps, which are the engine. They are the engines to the whole operations here. They are the ones that's going to draw maps in the future. They are the ones who's going to set laws for the governor to veto or accept or whatever. So that's what makes things go, is the way the House and the Senate at the state level uh, are constructed here in North Carolina. But we welcome any advantage we can get, any sense of modicum of fairness we can get over what they had proposed the first time. Yeah. So, Val, you know, the other problem that in the thing I've been thinking about an awful lot is uh, we our, our tensions are so divided right now. We, we, you know, you, you're swinging back and forth between COVID, Ukraine, you know, whatever, whatever's crazy is in the news. Right. And uh, there are elections coming up. And, and and one of the elections that's coming up would be for a Senate seat. Uh, and we haven't talked uh, a U.S. Senate seat. And the U.S. Senate hangs in the balance. I mean, you know, down in Georgia, since those were special elections, I think they have to stand for election again. Plus, there's seat open here and in some other places. So uh, the gerrymandering that they've been able to successfully do in, around the country uh, still could put the Democrats in a precarious position if they can't hold on to the Senate and if other House districts aren't thrown out in other states, right? We can't save everybody here in North Carolina. So nationally, uh, talk to me real quick about what the prospects are for the Democrats nationally because Ohio threw out some congressional districts, but Alabama and Mississippi were able to keep theirs. Texas has done their own thing and, and may have given Republicans an advantage. So it could be a wash where the Democrats winning more seats in North Carolina doesn't translate because of what they've done in Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas. Uh, have you paid any attention to nationally how things are going to uh, fare for the Democrats? Well, right now, the, the thing that raises this ugly head above all, all of that logistics and mathematical uh, hooplas that, that, that we just finished talking about is something called voter suppression. So th that's going to determine more than anything else how we can move forward uh, to mend or to correct some of the uh, things that have happened uh, recently. Uh, that means one thing for uh, African-Americans. 
The only way we can deal with voter suppression effectively is mega turnout because we have to make sure that for every vote that they stop from coming out that we have at least one, if not two, to replace it. That's the only thing we can do because we don't have the, the political numbers to stop them from instituting voter suppression measures, such as uh, moving precincts, uh, eliminating precincts, uh, no early voting or uh, voter ID, all of the things that they can do because they have control of the legislature in those particular states. Well, I mentioned that earlier, African-Americans as a group, as a body, we can't do anything about that except maximize the turnout so that we have an impact on their ability to minimize voter actuality. Yeah, That's the only thing we can do. That's what we've got to think about. The last thing I would say on this, Ed, is that we now know who the enemy is. And if the Senate is reverts back to the control of Republicans, you need to look no further than next door, across the street, and down the, the avenue. Because the U.S. Senate is not gerrymandered. Mm -hmm. If there was any gerrymandering, it was done in 1787 when you decided to have a bicameral type of Congress, okay? But it is not gerrymandered. And the only way that uh, white neo-Nazi, uh, white supremacists, people can win elections in your state is that white folks have to go out and vote for them. Right. So they are sending you, they meaning white people, your school teachers, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the police officer, your next door neighbor, all of those people who are coaching your kids soccer and all this other stuff, they are the ones that's voting for these white people. Yep. And stop blaming the legislature. Stop blaming Donald Trump. Stop blaming Richard Spencer. It's your next door neighbor who mm -hmm. doesn't look like you, who's going out putting these white supremacists back in offices. offices. They're calling themselves U.S. senators, but we know who they are and what they're about. It's them that are doing this. So now we are smoking them out and saying, you know, let's see what you're going to do with the Senate. If you hate white supremacy as much as you're telling me you do, show me. Show me, yeah. Show me by voting them out of office. Let yep. me see what you're going to do. You can't blame it on gerrymandering. You got a one-to-one -one vote. You can vote one way this way or one way the other, okay? Mm -hmm. show, show me what you think. And, and then when we take a look at the results of that election, we should fashion our strategies going forward accordingly. Yep, you're absolutely right. Hey, Val, you know, the other thing we said, you said Donald Trump too, so we got to follow the rules. So this is a clip from CPAC, which happens every year. The conservatives get together and act stupid. So let's look at this clip and then we'll talk about it. Santos's star may be on the rise. One look at the five women with yellow Trump shirts standing behind him indicates 
the party still has a favorite. And I bought the hat from a guy, where is he? Tom Freeman drove up from Jupiter. While he may have a DeSantis hat and button, he has another pick for president. I'd have to go with Trump. We want to keep DeSantis as our governor. Tell me about the hat. The hat says Trump DeSantis suggesting that Trump run for president in 2024 and DeSantis be his vice president. Dwayne Schwingle calls himself President Trump's official Uncle Sam. He too knows who he'll be backing. A familiar sentiment out here at CPAC. I don't want to talk about it too much, but what I do want to talk about is at the end of the clip, we said Donald Trump still problematic, not Trump himself, because I think we're clear at least between me and you, and I think a lot of people have figured this out, Donald Trump is just a person. It's, it's the attitude that they take into this, but there are people, you saw those people there with Trump shirts and Trump hats, and they're talking about Trump DeSantis running or whatever. Uh, is that still a problem, or will we, by the time we get to 2024, because of all the other stuff that Trump is going to have to contend with, he'll be out of the way. But won't we still have the problem of white folks having grievance, talking about critical race theory and all this other stuff? Isn't that more important than the singular name of Donald Trump? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, singular is more important than the singular name of uh, Donald Trump. That's where the rubber meets the road, Ed, as it were, uh, because Donald Trump saw a circumstance and a situation in America that if he could appeal to the racism, the white supremacy, and a whole lot of white voters, he could get them to support him and elevate him over people that had been serving as U.S. Senator and governor of their particular state uh, and won a primary and won a general election. He could do anything he wanted. He saw that opportunity out there. But they weren't voting for Donald Trump, the man, uh, the real estate mogul. They, they weren't voting for that. Here was a guy who understood how they felt about race and racism in America and white supremacy and who knew what it felt like to be losing your culture, what you stand for, who you are, knew what it felt like to almost being forced to give your country away to people who don't look like you. Those are the deep feelings inside of many white folks that's not being addressed, not being addressed enough anyway. And Donald Trump, he figured out a way how to tap into that feeling and how to let them know that he was their guy to protect them against that without saying the words. He knew the code words. He, know the, he knew the synonyms to what they really believe. He carried the thesaurus in his back pocket all the time, you know, and he could find the word to use to communicate with them to say, yes, I believe in white supremacy. Yes, I will keep you good. And what I'll do, folks, is I'll just call it, call it MAGA. I'll just call it Make America Great Again, okay? But you know what I mean by that. And I know that you support me on that. And Democrats sitting back thinking about, I don't know what, but they weren't on the same planet. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump was communicating right past them to the white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And it worked. And it, it worked. 2020. It did uh, work. Since I was 16, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it did work, Val. You know, before we run out of time, the last thing I want to talk about is the CDC. 
came out with new guidelines about masks. Let's look at that real quick because I blame Donald Trump for how COVID spread, at least in the United States. Uh, but uh, that's a whole nother story. This is the CDC. This is about the CDC mask mandate. For disease control and prevention on Friday dramatically eased its guidelines for mask wearing indoors, including in schools. The move means that 72% of the population will reside in communities where indoor face coverings are no longer recommended. The new masking guidelines shift focus from the rate of COVID-19 transmission to hospitalizations, hospital capacity, and infection rates as the wave of infections caused by the easily spread Omicron variant subsides substantially in the U.S. The CDC said universal school masking would now be advised only in communities with a high level of COVID-19. Okay, Val, so uh, last night uh, I already saw it here in Raleigh. There were people out without masks for the first time in two years, pretty much. Uh, they were hog wild. <laughs> Everybody was was uh, shouting, you know, hallelujah, and they were the restaurants were full and all that kind of stuff. I still have a fear that we have not beat this. There is another Omicron related variant that's out there. Uh, obviously, we we have to you know figure out how to adjust to COVID nineteen. Uh, a lot of the stuff I've been seeing lately is saying that. It's going to be endemic. It'll be like the flu. You get a COVID shot in the fall and, you know, you kind of work your way through it until it, it dies down. But there are still people who make this political vow. You know, we talked about the Canadian truckers already. There were there were people who were trying to block the streets in downtown Raleigh and throughout the country yesterday. Still over mass mandates, even as the mass mandates are being taken away, they're still complaining. I think it's because they're stupid. One, uh, that they've made it part of their political uh, assault. It's just like critical race theory. It's just like all the stuff we just talked about with the MAGA people, right? It's just another one of the things that they pull out of their pocket whenever they want to, you know, say, hey, this is what I got. I have a grievance here. COVID is turned into a grievance and not public health policy for a lot of these people, right? Absolutely. Uh, it, it's all a part of that language of understanding what I really mean. It's, it's like the uh, demonstration uh, that uh, is being held in uh, downtown Raleigh almost as we speak here today. Uh, they, they are Canadian truckers. Uh, they are anti-vaxxers, they are anti-mask wearers, uh, they are white supremacists, they got the Proud Boys there. I mean, what kind of coalition is that? It's all under the same umbrella. It all goes back to the same thing. We are defiant. We don't believe in what these other people uh, with their integrated societies believe in. We believe in separation, segregation, and white supremacy. Yeah. That's what we believe in. Anybody can help us along those lines, fine. We don't believe in anything else. So the wearing of the mask and taking vaccines, uh, automatically they've usurped that. And they're saying, if you believe, if you are with us on all of these other measures regarding race, you are anti-vaxxer and you're anti-mask wearer. And 
people come along with that. Yeah. And now you got people putting themselves and others at risk as far as health is concerned mm-hmm. because of their political position. You know, they're the island of misfit toys. You know, they, they, <laughs> they, it, it's a mishmash of all kind of crazy. And, uh, and I will call them that. I don't care. Uh, you, you are crazy. Uh, and, and, uh, you, you, the only thing that you guys have in common are you're not using common sense. Well, Val, you know, we're about to run out of time. So, you know, the deal, what, what, what are you, what do we got to look for in the next uh, week? Uh, what are you working on? Anything we need to know? Well, the thing that, uh, you look forward to every time we're on it is, uh, tune into Foxy 107, 104 on your terrestrial radios or go online to radio one and pick out. Foxy 107-104, and listen to an edition of Connections, and Talk Back is also there with Larry Hall, Uh, and uh, that's something you should tune into every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., because we go over that, the things we're talking about here and other places in great detail. So prepare your calendars, uh, put a X mark on it that you will be tuning in to connections on Foxy 107, 104, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. There you go. So you know know the drill here. Uh, You go out and do something good for somebody today, and we'll see you back here next Saturday. Uh, uh, If if we can get this done, uh, I'm trying to work on a special live uh, the deal, uh, but uh, we'll have more about that next Saturday. Uh, And uh, in the meantime, uh, we'll see you next Saturday. All right. Goodbye.